0: It's going down and you're invited for what they selling we ain't buying there is no running there is no hiding there's only fighting or dying it's going down and you're invited for what they selling we ain't buying there is no running there is no hiding there's only fighting or dying It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action.
1: Go to it'sgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast.
2: I'm Shane Burley. Um, I'm the editor of the new book from AK Press, uh, no Pas Ron, Anti-Fascist Dispatches from a World in Crisis. It's uh, uh, an anthology featuring about 25 chapters, different contributors, all kinds of great folks. Um, and previously, I wrote Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse, and Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It. Um back in 2017
1: yeah it's been about a year and a half since we talked first but first off tell us about the book that you mentioned that's out now on ak press
2: yeah so i've been working on this uh, i think kim and i first started talking about it, like 2018 so it's about a little over four years um so it's basically an anthology of anti-fascist writing from organizers journalists some scholars uh, interviews, all kinds of different things. And it basically traces what we hoped would be sort of like untold stories and anti-fascism kind of expanding outward from what we've seen. Some of the books have been published, trying to do something uh, a little bit more. So there's a lot of great chapters, stuff on anti-fascist prisoners, stuff on international questions, stuff on history, stuff on uh, black anti-fascist tradition. Um, there's interviews with folks in it, uh, like Mike Crenshaw about the founding of anti-racist action, um, it's a huge spread, and there's a lot of great folks in it. Uh Tal Laven does the forward. David Renton did the afterward. Uh, Kim Kelly's in it. Emily Grasensky, um, Matt Lyons. Uh, there's a ton of great folks in it
1: it's interesting last time we talked which was over a year and a half ago it seems not that
2: long ago but what's changed do you think since then i think there's been a really massive shift in the far right and there's also been a big shift that's going to be ongoing inside social movements i think um i think we're shifting in the far right to a sort of like a post alt-right white nationalist movement trying to redefine itself new people have come to the forefront we have national conservatives on the more like Beltway side and we have Groypers and other folks that have sort of started to dominate white nationalist politics. Um, it's also, you know, we're even further away from January 6th and the world's changed there too. you know, formal far right organizations are sort of under the microscope. People have been prosecuted. Uh, there's been a huge sort of attack on right wing uh, mass events that are going on. There are, like a lot of instability. Um, and so I think people are sort of recalibrating now about what they're dealing with.
1: Yeah, I would totally agree. And I think actually those dynamics will define what we talk about going forward. You know, just to kind of get back to the book real quick before we started to get into some of these larger discussions. Tell us about some of the selections. Uh, You know, one of these that looks really interesting is the black anti-fascist tradition. I know Daryl has a selection in there. We were mm-hmm. talking about some of the other ones. Just tell us maybe about some of the highlights uh, in there for you.
2: Yeah, Janelle Hope uh, writes about the black anti-fascist tradition and sort of the history um, it, from really movements sort of from the 30s forward, including uh, Black Panthers and other folks that saw, sort of like took a different take on the threat of fascism and saw it more implicit in the American system of racial caste. Um, Mike Bento also tells a, a pretty good story in that way and also works in a lot of their personal experiences as an organizer. Um, and and just experiences of kind of like everyday white supremacy, how it plays with a longer tradition of fascism and also breaking down the boundaries between when we say fascism and when we say mm-hmm. the kind of institutions of colonialism and white supremacy. So having a certain flexibility back and forth, Daryl has a great um uh, piece in there. Daryl Lamont Jenkins from one people's project um, tells a story from many years ago. It's right there in the middle. Um, and it's sort of great. And it also kind of talks about sort of how he, sort of came to where he is now, what kind of doing the organizing he does now and how he kind of shifted that. But it really tells about kind of like a, a more um, kind of like a memory of one of these confrontations and how it shaped him, which is really, really fabulous. I, there's some really cool ones. Um, uh, Kim Kelly interviews an anti-fascist prisoner about their experience at Rikers, um, which really stands out. Um, uh, Matt Lyons does sort of what he does best, which is really traces exactly where we are and what the forces in the far right are, which I think is one that's, I, it's sort of missing sometimes from anti-fascist writings to get really down into the weeds about what's going on here to, to understand it. Uh, Hillary Moore's chapter on anti-fascist fight clubs is great. Um, and really sort of, sort of reframes how we think of kind of like fitness culture, athletics, uh, martial arts and sort of creates a counter narrative we hear a lot about far right five clubs and it's nice hearing about anti-fascist fight clubs um, and the way also that that plays into a degree with what ryan smith's chapter talks about which is about subcultures and what role at, like conscious subcultures are he talks about um paganism and metal um And sort of interviews a number of folks in kind of both worlds about like, what does it mean to build this subculture? I think Hillary's chapter sort of discusses the same thing, which is an important thing that I think sometimes get overlooked as we're talking about mass tactics and things, what role subcultures actually have, um, because they have such a, a deeper connection with the people that they do connect with. Um, there is a great chapter on surrealism um, and anti-fascism in the first half of the 20th century uh, from Alexander Reed Ross. There is a really wonderful chapter um, by Emily Grisinski that I think people will get really into. There's a, a really amazing chapter about the use of sort of like online and digital tactics in anti-fascism, both for operational security and for research, but also for developing pressure campaigns and stuff that really sort of like goes outside what has normally been written about this. So it's really kind of a new, not like a a kind of a new take on how to build up campaigns and how to think about anti-fascism in a more complex kind of tech centered way. Um, And there's a, there's a bunch more. It it's a a massive book. It's over 200,000 words. It's well over 500 pages or it's right about 500 pages. So it's a, it's a big volume.
1: You also talked to you in the book, Mike Crenshaw about the birth of anti-racist action or ARA. I'm curious to know what from that history still inspires you today because you did that interview and what are some of the lessons that you continue to pull from for now?
2: Yeah, I mean, for folks, folks don't know, Mike, Mike is a hip hop artist out here, an organizer, uh, an educator, a teacher, um, and he sort of helped found uh, anti-racist skinhead organization when he was a teenager. Um, back in the eighties. And that was sort of what started to build some of the anti-racist skinhead movement in the U S expand outwards and really had a big influence here uh, because he moved from the Midwest here and sort of brought a lot of that traditions with him. Um, and also was there with the formation of anti-racist action. There's sort of a, an interplay between the history of anti-racist skinheads and eventually what became anti-racist action and sort of like intermediate organizations along the way. And Mike was there as a real young person uh, and also, as a black skinhead and, and can, uh, a punk rock scene that was a lot wider, he has a lot of kind of nuanced experiences of what this was like. And also, he, you know, the point that he makes a lot is that they didn't um, emerge as a political project. They emerged as a way of keeping their community safe from Nazis. You know, Nazis were showing up in the same working class neighborhoods that they lived in, showing up in punk rock venues, and they had to find a way to basically protect people there. And it was after doing that kind of work that they started to be involved with, you know, folks like the John Brown Anti Klan Committee and other political projects that said, "Hey, maybe there's something more here. Maybe, maybe there's even more politics." Um, and that folks like, uh, you know, his comrades like Kieran Knudsen, uh, joined the love and rage and, and kind of other political projects and openly politicized this and moved it from something that was just about community defense to something that was about community defense plus these kind of larger, uh, political issues and how to organize around them. And that is what really brought us into anti-racist action. And so I think a lot that there's a sort of effort to, to have a really, coherent kind of activist strategy when people are thinking about this but that's in a way while important not the only thing that's going on there communities have to keep themselves safe they have to create spaces for them um and a lot of ways that's what came first here and the politics emerged from actually being involved that the lived experience of doing that um and i think People, this it feels like a long time ago. We're talking about the eighties here and early nineties, but this really is the ancestor of modern Antifa groups and military anti fascism in the US. It comes out of those anti-racist skinhead groups um, and then into anti-racist action. And so those kind of subcultures that people sort of disregard a little bit really are where this emerged in a lot of ways.
1: I'm curious what your thoughts have been watching
2: the January 6th committee play out. So, I mean, I think there is a track record of these sorts of like trail prosecutions can take down organizations. This, this has happened before. And I think that a focus on the, the proud boys and the Oath Keepers could possibly take down some of their functionality, though. I think they both have enough longevity to survive it. But I think one of the problems here is that it refocuses on formal organizations when that's just not the core of the movement any longer the movement is moving past formal organizations in the way that a lot of social movements are there's a real shift to kind of this social network model and you can't really use a rico charge on a social network you can't really take them down with these prosecutions the state is sort of whether or not it's unwilling to actually deal with it is a different question but even its capacity i think to take down movement as such is sort of impossible when you're just focusing on those organizations. So having that be the fundamental core of things creates some problems for people. Um, I think also this is sort of reshaping how people think of what it means to be offensive. And this is why in the, in the entry, in the, um, introduction for No Pasaron, I talk about the January 6th, uh, commission and the prosecutions and particularly the investigations around it, which I've written about in other places. And the sort of liberal participation in it, and there's a, you know, a number of groups that sort of do volunteer labor for the FBI, basically going through social media posts, trying to locate January 6th insurrectionists so that it can be prosecuted. And one of the problems here is that this. And I think that the shift in liberal politics has sort of told a certain class of folks that the state actually can be used to take down fascists like it's doing it right now. A liberal state actually can. And the rule of law is actually somehow neutral. You just have to you know, get it directed at the right people. And I think the January 6th commission, the, the prosecutions and the investigations gives the illusion that the state, one, has an interest in taking down these groups, but two, actually can take down those groups. And so I think that ends up being a diversion from what I think, and a lot of folks think is a more effective approach, which is to have organizing outside of the auspices of the state to take on those groups, because that is actually where that work is done.
1: Yeah. And of course, you know, not on the table is the reality that, you know, one of the main reasons that J six became as big as it did was because the police were focusing so much on Black Lives Matter, anti fascist you know, anti-Trump protesters, and not on, you know, the far right. I mean, of course, none of that is up for really discussion or being looked at by the investigative committee and just taken as a given.
2: It's I, I think it's important for people to think through the logic of using the state investigation's as sort of a weapon against the far right who enacts that well it's the police it's law enforcement those are the people that would go out and snatch folks they get charges pressed that kind of thing well those are also the people who are members of the oath keepers at disproportionate rates those are people that have collaborated on events with proud boys you know uh, communicated with them and things like that um and it is the left that disproportionately gets attacked by police um, uh, the left that has been engaged in like campaigns to either you know um, defund or abolish the police. So I think people should think through well, how would this actually play out. How could you possibly see them taking down a group like the Youth Keepers of the Proud Boy or taking down a far right social movement that's growing and growing? So I, I I think like the the actual one the inequalities of the system that are implicit, but also just the structure of who the police are sort of dissuade us from believing that they can actually take that down any real way. And because of that, I think there's a dissonance that's happening now right now. There's a lot of fantasizing about what the FBI is capable of in this case. And it sort of gets back to this this idea that it's it's sort of seductive to believe the state can be used against the people you want it used against. That if you just empower this and you sort of stack the deck a little bit, that you can use it against the far right. And the reality is that When you build up the FBI's capacity to surveil social movements, they will do it on you next. Um, And so we need to think about a little bit more long term about how this works.
1: Yeah, I feel like there's almost like this uh, fetish by liberals to think like, oh, well, if you can uh, do it to quote unquote gang members or juggalos even, why can't you pull over somebody with a Punisher sticker, you know, search their car or put them in some sort of database and harass them at the airport as if that's sort of the world that we should be pushing for.
2: It's interesting. Cause I think it's sort of like some of the problematic privilege discourse in liberal circles, like the liberal versions of it that will point out these very real disparities. Like, yeah, I, I it's absurd that they're pulling over loads and not <laughs> people, with bumper stickers. Like that's a very clear a difference there, but I don't want the equality of further oppression. I don't want it to just be like, let's make the state even more kind of um, overreaching and that will sort of make things horizontal. But the other thing is that the state simply will not use it against those folks. It is not built to do that. The structure doesn't accommodate for that. Um, when you're having groups like the Oath Keepers that recruit specifically from the police, it undermines the ability that the police will actually be able to do that. And so people should look at the track record of this. Historically, you know, these sorts of um extra, I don't know, overwrought policing measures are used historically against marginalized communities and the left. And so I just think people should think long term about what is going to be the most effective ways, not just to kind of take down the far right, um, but to also create flourishing communities in general. People want to take down the far right because they interfere or attack flourishing communities. And so I think that, in a way, um, should be the metric of what's an effective strategy for dealing with this stuff.
1: You know, for instance, the Proud Boys, it was not like they were not on the F- FBI's radar before J6 or they had, like, no communication. You know, since J6, um, you know, one thing that's come out is that some of these guys supposedly were talking to the FBI and giving them information, quote-unquote, about Antifa. I mean, I don't know how much stock to put in that. People like Joe Biggs have said that. We know that Joe Biggs, for instance, got visited before, I think there was a large rally in, uh, Portland, I think in like was it 2018 or 19? That was one of the ones where they did the march across the
2: bridge. I think that was 2019,
1: right? And they
2: were visited beforehand.
1: This was, I think, right after the Pittsburgh shooting.
2: Yeah, I I think with with Biggs, they actually did tone down the rhetoric at that rally. That's kind of they left early and stuff. And I I always got the impression it was because he was visited and basically understood that whatever happened there, he would be held responsible for. But it's also I mean, we have to think about the larger context of this, too. We're living through, you know, these incredible Antifa conspiracy theories, sort of the modern incarnation of anti-communist conspiracy theories that sort of have created this air inside law enforcement that anti-fascists are disproportionately violent, disproportionately everywhere. And versus people like the Oath Keepers, which are like folks they know, if not actual folks they know. And so I it's simply not going to be um a neutral response to sort of illegality. The other thing I think is, that's important here, too, is that like when folks are protesting the far right and they do things like block roads or. Have civil disobedience or whatever think you know, things that are are technically illegal. Do you want to say that those things should be out of bounds? Is that what um should should the neutral standard then be applied to say, oh, it's actually illegality that's the problem rather than the actual racist threats of the far right? And I think that's also a problematic reframing that's been happening with, by overly focusing on prosecutions.
1: Well, just kind of one more question on uh, this tip. You know, recently there was a, a report that was put out about a patriot front, I think from a veterans group that was basically saying kind of what we've been talking about, just there needs to be more prosecutions. And I mean, you know, they, to their point, they made, you know, a pretty good solid critique saying like, look, these groups are literally engaging in, you know, what is considered hate crimes, like vandalizing. You know, Black Lives Matter murals and statues and pride centers and synagogues and stuff. And they're bragging about it, and they're talking about how their leadership is okaying it and organizing it and signing off on it. Just curious, you know, where you see this discourse, you know, pushing for, you know, either greater terrorism enhancements or, you know, a more robust security state. Uh, there's been a lot of pushback against that, and there's been a lot of back and forth do you see that kind of going anywhere now that we're like almost two years away from J six or is it just kind of dead in the water?
2: I mean, I guess I should be clear. You know, there's no, I'm not unhappy when these groups are prosecuted. They're dangerous. People deserve to feel safe. Um, There's a clear disparity in the way that they see it happening, and it's an improved situation to have the disparity (laughs) fixed. And I think Patriot Front, in particular, is quite frightening. And so things that stop them from immediately harming people are a good thing. I think it depends on what message you're sending to the larger community. Are you going to be engaged with this issue as a community group? Um, Is that where you put your stock in? Or do you think that the the main solution should should be in law enforcement? And I'd rather see people you know, take charge in the community and engage in large community groups because that is what will keep them safe in the long term. Connecting with your neighbors, forming community groups, joining community groups, and having a sense of safety and safety plans, things like that, I think is the the, the most effective long-term strategy there. I think the question of terrorism enhancements is one that is sort of in any one of these conversations since 9-11. I think it's I would find it unlikely for them to start applying it in those situations. Uh, but again, the this, the wind that's framed, this politicized sort of prosecutions based on politicized action, it's one that is then kind of used uh, disproportionately against folks that you might collaborate with in other ways, like, you know, left-wing activists, things like that. Uh, this is, I think, there, we have some very, very clear examples of this um, after 9-11 and after things like the Operation Backfire prosecutions of environmental act there's going to be further calls to do this to use terrorism enhances to use enhanced prosecutions some of which will be like common sense you know like if the patriot front is actually out there like damaging synagogues things like that it's sort of like i don't think anyone's gonna make a big hey about those folks being prosecuted i think it's whether or not you strengthen the sort of anti-terrorism apparatus and what that ends up doing and i i think if the liberal left has a lot of faith, one, in the longevity of the Biden administration and of a sort of liberal, new liberal status quo that makes them more comfortable in engaging in this rhetoric of of, of turning reframing stuff as terrorism. Um, I think if there's an incoming republican administration or something those liberals will turn away from that immediately because they there's a they understand that history but i think that comfort with the liberal left obviously is a mirage because even in democratic governments they'll they'll turn it against the left uh, anyway so i think it depends on what that perception is there's also been
1: you know an open debate about the health of these various groups impacted by j6 Uh but overall it seems their successes and failures sort of rise and fall with their ability to act within the outrage cycle of whatever culture war issue is is hot right now. You know, the Proud Boys after J Six were, you know, doing things like um going to school board meetings and talking about critical race theory and like literally trying to ban certain books. Uh that seems to be kind of fallen out of favor now and it's sort of reinvented itself around this panic around you know quote-unquote groomers and going after pride events and uh drag queen story hour events and stuff like that you know is that what you're
2: seeing yeah absolutely i think one of the issues on the right is that now that they have repealed roe versus wade and um and abortion, they've made just such significant gains on abortion that was such of the forefront of fundraising and a, drumming up the base that they really do have to reframe it, and the reframing it on trans kids and like public declarations of LGBT solidarity, right? Like the, like again, like the claim that pride events are grooming events um, that they're used to, to attack and recruit kids. This is like really old school homophobia that's coming back and, and basically establishing itself. It's they, they do these sorts of culture issues, particularly on queer stuff because they're able to tap a very thinly veiled deep well of like visceral resentment and anti-queer hate in a lot of communities. Um, and it's one that creates a lot of energy very quickly. But there's also been a really established kind of conspiracy narrative over the last few years that has allowed this to take off. So a lot of the beyond hyperbolic claims of human trafficking and trafficking of kids that have become sort of the... This standardized narrative of the right has allowed that people to have this sort of like emergent panic feeling that that basically anything that deviates from whatever their norm is, is actually a a malicious, intentional attack on children. And so they're using that kind of rhetoric to reframe it. You've also had just shifts in the like not necessarily the more moderate right but the right as such. So like the shift after Trump from what we see as national conservatives and other folks uh figures like you know Paul Gallagher Green is to basically have these these narratives of assault on our kind of sense of safety. And and so what's happening here is that you're seeing them create this kind of panic model of recruitment um, and that outrage is getting a lot larger than it had been previously and they have to reframe it around a new culture issue so this is, they have all the kind of infrastructure in their communities to do this and so they're going to hold, keep pulling on that as much as possible and a lot of these queerphobic attacks have proven to be a really effective binding agent for them, it's what's binding them with the rank and file all the way to the GOP and so there's no reason for them to abandon it. It's working particularly well for them. And because there's a lot of movement for them to make on queer issues, you know, like, you know, a gay marriage is legal, um, that kind of thing. There's a lot of places where they can kind of attack to roll it back. And since abortion, they basically won on that. This gives them the space to kind of work on those issues as a way of constantly appealing to their base. Um, And again, when you have kids involved and you frame them as under attack, it's able to play into a kind of impulsive violence that you're starting to see at a lot of pride events that we saw recently uh, with Patriot Front and other groups coming to these events where they can kind of justify the mo- kind of indulging in the most egregious acts of impulsive violence by framing it as an attempt to save children from some kind of like sexual predation. And so all of this creates a really useful cycle for them. Um, the right in general is going to base a lot of its impetus for existence basically on anti-immigrant stuff and along this queer phobia lines. And they're able to attach so many different issues by interweaving with that. They can attack education by doing this. They can attack housing issues. They can attack healthcare access. They can attack a lot of things by framing it in this defending kids from queer predation.
1: Why has that seemed to have stuck harder uh, than other things? uh, this, you know, focus on LGBTQ themes. It also seems, I mean, I don't know if you agree with this, but it also seems like that kind of feeds a lot, um, off of, you know, QAnon and its, you know, obsession with, you know, children and, you know, groomers and, you know, all that stuff that seems to kind of be in a natural extension from that.
2: You know, it reminds me, I was at this event, uh, here in Oregon, uh, several years ago, I was facilitating a conversation between union organizers and activists at some of this kind of a public, um, like public activist fair kind of thing. And there was a number of people kind of talking about their different organizing programs and different things. And there was someone from the Steelworkers who was talking about organizing sex workers and how they were trying to organize um, dancers at a, a couple of Portland uh, clubs. And then someone from a, a kind of local group rose their hand and said, well, we have a problem with that because 95 percent of sex workers in the U.S. are actually trafficked children. And I looked around and there was just a head of nods from like, you know, 25 out of the 30 people there. Um this is obviously fact. There's no reason to believe that that's true. That's entirely manufactured nonsense. But this kind of logic has actually become endemic in the U.S. now. This idea that whether implicitly or explicitly, there is child trafficking conspiracies happening all over the place. So you mentioned QAnon. I think QAnon and theories like QAnon or softer versions of QAnon have become the standard mythology, not just of the right, but even beyond that. Uh, this is a conversation that's happening all across the country and the belief and entering a new kind of stranger danger panic where this idea that trafficking is a main threat, p- partly because the language of trafficking is used to talk about lots of kind of different issues happening that don't play into that conspiracy model. So people don't differentiate between those issues, the way that trafficking is used as a criminal charge and the way that uh, trafficking is used in the conspiracy narrative. So people have these really expansive conspiracy theories about what trafficking is, not based on the actual numbers of of, of who is being trafficked and why they're being trafficked. And that way they're able to de- then reframe this kind of queer narrative in their trafficking garb and how they've understood that. And that's, we created in a lot of ways their most useful common language. They're able to tell the story of queer folks in their community using their trafficking language now because that's what everyone seems to understand. And so I think that has all that kind of thing, the conspiracy theories, And the trafficking language has created this foundation that they're able to build on. And again, because trafficking narratives are really based on kind of panic responses and real fear of kind of the worst fantasies you can pull together, it motivates a kind of insurgent response that you wouldn't see in other issues. So reframing that is going to create... A lots of not just like huge motivating factors and counter-protests and things like that, but acts of violence because people believe that they're defending kids from like immediate danger, and that's incredibly terrifying because that will lead to um, the kinds of impulsive violence that you j- simply don't see from other issues. Well, John Wayne, man. <laughs>
0: Of the West in the US uniform and a cowboy vest. Mass murder and negative aggression. The henchman lynches symbolizing oppression. Perfection to be a force of good. A clue clutch cracker without the hood. The full package honky, I wish you would. Gasoline and kerosene, I'm dousing wood. Protect private property, kill the natives. Being a cop of the racist is not creative. Archetype of the devil, personified. Kill, kill, kill. Traumatized Fantasized Romanticized And glamorized Been a front man For expansion Through genocide Entertainment is propaganda That blue eyed devil Was not the answer In a blue suit, inherited fear in their hearts, born ready to shoot. From St. Creek to Dillon Roof, it's a lose lose. Gatling guns, write the news. Birth of a nation, wrote the burning cross. Grandmother the Fox News, wrote the news. Every so human for themselves, it came to that. A settler's an immigrant with a native flag. Mirage in the desert, we paid for that. First in blood, with the weight on our back. Gravity is the only law Setting of sun is the only order If push comes to shove, it'll be cowboys strung up from here to the border Why you wanna dress up like G.I. Joe? You could be John Brown or Geronimo Can't bring back the frontiers you ended So death to Reagan whenever he's resurrected Films are the dream the society sings as it thinks of a war ruled by Anglos What do I know? I'm just a bystander born in a fucking cop show You where you are, I start a boo-ha-ha, most of these races simple and plain, reparations fuck John Wayne, I'm from a place where they made us hang, still the chain gang, blue lives of a gang gang. We gorilla minded as we maintain, lit up on a hip, keep that thing, thing. It's the return of the anarchists. Urban cowboys causing damages. Me and my cool crew got the whole city locked. One mad cracker took out a whole city block. Uh. We forget forgetting they stabbing shit. Body armor on at the range, passing the clip. You ain't gonna see me for days, you pass the rent. Still screaming, land back, bitch. We it. Matter of fact, no asking, snatching it Not seeing the street, is jaw, we cracking it Feed all our peace, for sure, we black, we lit We brown, we proud, ask Scott, we on common ground Gathering people like you John Brown The B.L.A. the weather underground Coming to your town, ski mask and feathers On my black native, John Wayne never. I said, on my black native, John Wayne never. I said, on my black native, proud boys, never.
2: fascists that wear red ties and blue suits and white shirts
1: on boardrooms and on tv shows than 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 our people on the street well you know lately we've seen uh groups like the proud boys and also neo-nazis really embedding themselves within these anti-lgbt currents uh you know i think a couple of weeks ago there was Uh, rally out in texas where people were protesting literally this like bingo event at a church and you had patriot front out there you had the proud Boys standing next to them you also had people with the aryan freedom network which is sort of like a classic you know neo-nazi group literally flying swastika flags uh standing next to trump supporters and you know far-right catholics and all that stuff I'm just curious to know, what are the things that you're seeing anti-fascists in broader communities that are doing to push back against this
2: stuff? I think it's it's interesting because we've had a lot of a lot of factors that have sort of changed what public demonstrations have looked like. You know, we have a a pandemic, we're just leaving. We had uh, shifts in the political terrain. There's a lot of things that created sort of a break in continuity. um, And you saw that in anti-fascist demonstrations too. I think what anti-fascists are dealing with and have to deal with is the changing shape of the far right and the fact that the far right incursion to the Republican Party is a permanent one. And so they're going to constantly have to deal with um, questions of gray area of whether or not something uh, is pr- properly designated the far right or as fascism. And that sort of dictates what kind of tactics people use or what seems appropriate you know, like the event that you're talking about is actually quite unusual. Like you normally don't see swastika flags uh, flying at events. You know, when there is, that's pretty easy to make the case. And I think most people in the community are sort of down for mass actions to kind of disrupt their space or block them, that kind of thing. I think when it's, you know, Blake Masters events, it's a different question and it's more confusing as to how to make that choice. And so I think there's going to be a lot of wrestling with that. But what a lot of people have, what has happened a lot over the last few years is a really strong sort of reconnection of the community um, around organizing and how to collaborate with that. And so we saw that in 2020 with the BLM protests and with mutual aid networks and and uh, that year and the year after, where a lot of people have created permanent networks of coordinating outside of formal organizations, a lot of the cases. But those networks have actually kept themselves together. And so the ability of taking mass action is much more um kind of relevant to folks um, and can happen more quickly and happen in a more sustained way because people are sort of dealing with things like care work and mutual aid support, and medical support, and things like that as a standard part of organizing. So I think they're more capable of it now. But we are in a period of flux. We don't know exactly how some of these forces are going to pan out. I think, you know, within the next year or something, we are going to see sort of some real clear changes rise to the surface. But there has been a real effort in sort of a post-Trump, I don't know if we can even say that, but like a you know a MAGA world now um, to make there be less of a division between white nationalists and the rest of sort of the Republican sphere. And I think that will more and more become a piece of that. And we're seeing that, you know, as like Republican figures that, you know, go to open white nationalist conference like American Renaissance or they're involved in kind of the Greuper movement. I think that sphere of folks that used to be really extreme and used to be really out there is just going to grow and grow and grow. And so the question for anti-fascists is how do you engage with something that used to be exceptional, you know, a neo-Nazi rally is an exceptional event, uh, but it's no longer exceptional.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting too, is that this is happening, you know, a month before, even less of a month before midterms. I mean, you would think that the Republicans would want to flee, you know, as much as possible. From any association with the far right or anybody like flying swastika flags you know it, it's it's strange to me uh i think it's just emblematic of the fact that they have to continuously go back to the far right well and sort of um you know push more and more to the extreme in order to drum up their base around this stuff
2: I mean, I think the nationalists in their circle are the only ones that actually speak to the issues, the working class issues of parts of their base. Right. Like, uh, you know, someone like Blake Masters and then to the right of him, right? A lot of these like groper movements and things like that actually do speak to the experiences of like economic dispossession. Obviously they tell a story of it, you know, that, that blames queer folks and immigrants and, and whoever else. But that's part of what has actually been successful about the new Republican party is that it now tries to speak to people's actual experiences rather than just, you know, openly pushing tax cuts for billionaires as the sort of method for protecting the working class. They are actually speaking to those issues in a way. So I think what's happening here is that Republicans are now seeing that the far right is their base that it actually does is what attracts folks that's always been true in like primary season and things like that but I think that's actually becoming their standard it reminds me actually I think I bring this up at the beginning of my first book Faces of the day that many years before Trump well not many years, uh, several years before Trump Richard Spencer and the National Policy Institute did uh, this presentation on like a white paper they created called the majority strategy, which is basically that the Republican Party is implicitly the party of white people. So what they should do is instead of trying to recruit non-white folks or a more diverse constituency, what they should do is just more effectively recruit white folks by making it explicitly kind of white nationalist rhetoric to basically like white identity politics um and that's what the lesson the republican party has learned and it is they are they are creating that kind of energy in their base and that sense of kind of well hatred and resentment on the one hand but also of desperate fear amongst them that's just going to keep them coming out and i think that's what their strategy is is to drum up that resentment as much as possible um in a way that doesn't build bridges in a way that doesn't actually grow the party um, instead just get their base out and then hopefully uh, by maintaining some sense of control over the government they can do things like gerrymander districts um, and, and stop immigration other things that might affect that kind of white hegemony. So I think that's a very conscious strategy. It's one that is working for them. And I don't think they have a reason to sort of disavow the far right anymore. The other thing is also like it used to be that people would have to answer for these relationships. They'd have to, you know, like, Oh, it, you know, it looks like you're, you have some relationship with, you know, a white nationalist publication or, you know, some neo Nazi showed up to your rally. Nowadays they just ignore it or they say it's a lie, or they say it's fake news. Like, they really can just step over these allegations, which is why, for example, the kind of naming and shaming strategy that a lot of the liberal left had for years and years simply does not work. What actually works is community organizing that stops those events or counters those events. It's not good enough to just publish, like, a witty op-ed or Washington Post calling out, you know, Steve King for his white nationalist association. So it's not enough anymore.
1: Right. You know, people
2: will be like, oh, based, you know, cool. Right. I mean, huge parts of the base would. And more than that, someone like Steve King could just say, oh, that's just cultural Marxist lying to you. They're just trying to make you guilty for being white. You know, like it doesn't it, at this point, it doesn't really like the reality of it doesn't matter so much. What matters is how they're able to spin that.
1: Right. Or, you know, well, I didn't know that they were like that. I just went there to talk to them. Like, what's wrong with that?
2: Yeah. Like, I'm just asking questions. You know, why can't I ask questions? Why can't I talk about white folks? Is it illegal to be white? I mean, it's just it's such a constant reframing from them Um and they become so fluid at it. Entire campaigns are being built. I mean, we have to remember, like, Marjorie Taylor Greene was elected um, after, you know, Jewish space lasers and just really out there QAnon conspiracy theories. She was elected. So in the end, the reality of who she was being openly discussed and openly exposed, it didn't matter.
1: You know, what's so interesting, too, about, you know, the Republican Party essentially doubling down on... You know, that idea of becoming the party of white identity politics too is, you know, as Richard Spencer has noted, you know, less white people voted for, uh, Donald Trump than they did, you know, previous, uh, Republican, uh, nominees. So that in itself, although it is a strategy that appears to be working, it's also one that doesn't seem to be necessarily
2: be sustainable. It's, it depends on how they, Play. I think I think their belief is that if they sustain it for long enough, it won't matter. They'll be able to change the country so thoroughly that it will ingratiate them into further generations. Um, but again, you know, I think, you know, these people, I think someone like, you know, we have like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and other folks do not have as coherent a sense of long term political strategy um, as I think. Other GOP operatives believe they might. Throwing things at the wall to get elected and stay elected right now, it's hard to know how that would play out in 10, 15, 20 years.
1: Well, this next question, I'm really curious to hear your um, response. But it's interesting because ultimately it seems like these are losing battles for the far right. I mean, pride celebrations are not going to go away. In fact, I mean, this year I'm seeing across the U.S. like more and more cities and towns like holding their first Pride celebrations, even in the face of potential protests. You know, people are not going to go back in the closet, especially young folks. I think, um, you know, if you look at, like, the mass amount of walkouts that's happened, there's even more broad support, especially among young people for LGBTQ youth. Uh, people are fired up about this stuff. They're not happy about these attacks on uh, trans and queer kids. Um, it also seems like... When the far right organizes these rallies, they're getting massive amounts of pushback. And I don't know, from what we're seeing is that sort of like the liberal progressive strata that before was sort of kind of like wringing their hands about, you know, anti fascist like, I don't know about, you know, putting on the mask and like going to go to a protest or something like that. Now they seem to be pretty gung-ho about at least people coming out and defending these spaces. And like even like the coverage of like the Elm Fork John Brown Gun Club in Roanoke <laughs> defending that event was like, if you look at like the queer press, I mean, it was very positive. Um, there's, there seems to be sort of a bit of a shift and it, I'm just curious, you know, like, have they, like, I understand why the far right is engaging in like this really anti LGBTQ stuff because it's sort of like the hot topic and everything that you already laid out. But ultimately, like, are they activating something that's, that's going to become much larger and is this going to like come back to bite them in the butt, I guess?
2: I think so I think that they I think it will become much larger for them. I so I think what's going to happen is that right now they are in a period of reinvention. A uh, kind of post-Roe reinvention um, and so there is a sort of broad attack on queer rights that I think you're right will not have appeal with folks like them trying to repeal gay marriage or something would be massively unpopular but what they'll do is start to hyper-focus on certain issues and blow them wider and so I think that could for example be um healthcare for trans youth is something where they've created a really huge amount of fear that's actually expanded beyond their base I mean you can hear this in like ostensibly liberal places you know Bill Maher, like the Atlantic, like this kind of panic over, um, trans healthcare for kids, um, and making that a sort of front and center issue. And I think what they'll try and do is then divide support for queer communities along those lines and say, okay, this is the line that we're going to build it on. Um, and because of that, because that's sort of seen as a concession, I think that that's actually going to get some of the, the left opposition off their back, um, and break down those sorts of things. I think, Right, there, there has been a general sort of, I think people, I think the right has lost the info war on anti-fascists and organizers in general, um, partially because it's so absurd. But I think what, what they're going to end up doing is trying to build up support on these more focused in issues and then also try and play like generational games. In their base, basically, you know, um, allege the left is basically, you know, cancel culture warriors and PC police, things like that. And that will help to kind of break solidarity also. So I think we should look at the very material attacks they're they're taking right now. And some of them have more legs, um, like the massive wave of bills to attack trans health care all across the country. I think they're going to try and hone in on that and make that a game for the for the long haul.
1: Also, like, what's your read? You know, The Daily Beast put out a series of articles recently about how there was some, like, MAGA rallies in D.C. And I think there was one this weekend, and, like, somebody from Steve Bannon's podcast come and spoke, and there was, like, 25 people that showed up. And they were literally, like, you know, trying to blame Antifa for, like, the low turnout. And, I mean, we've kind of seen this across the U.S. where it's, like, a lot of, like, far-right stuff has kind of flopped. And even if you look at some of these... um you know, anti-LGBTQ stuff, like, you know, there might be a handful of Proud Boys that show up, but I mean, these aren't large demonstrations, and in fact, it seems like the anti-fascist or you know, anti-racist um, side is is much larger. You know, in Modesto, there was, you know, several hundred anti-fascists that showed up and there was only like a couple dozen Proud Boys where in years prior, there had been like a hundred people that have come to this Stray Pride event. Um, you know, what's your take on that? Is that just kind of the moment that we're in where we're not, you know, in a time where there's thousands of people out in the streets? Or is that emblematic of... What's going on on the far right side?
2: I think it's actually a little bit more, um, it's a little bit more based on the specific situation on the far right. I mean, one of the things that Trump did was create a common figure that was celebritized and was everywhere. You know, every part of the country you could do that. That's not the same thing for like J.D. Vance, right? Like that's not happening. There's not J.D. Vance uh, rallies in every part of the country. So there's not that kind of unifying force of celebrity. Um, a lot of the organizations have either are either being you know, prosecuted and creating actual issues or they've lost a lot of their kind of shine um, because of their behavior. So the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers and other groups similar. So that's not really a focal point right now. There is local candidates and that's where a lot of the energy in the kind of post MAGA part of the party and the movement is. Um, but those, again, are not celebritized in the same way. So I think it's just based on the particular moment. They very easily could re- reconvene and build up those base in the next couple of years. And they may do that around a 2024 presidential candidate. Um, and so I think that might be the direction of it. But again, we are always larger than them. I mean, th- there's never been a situation in which anti-racist and anti not don't outnumber the their core. Uh Trump did inflate those numbers at a lot of these events and stuff, but I don't think we should look at that and say, oh, wow, look at the numbers we're dealing with because those are not representative samples of the community. If you actually look at the people in your neighborhood and your communities and communities across the country, they're much more willing to support the goals of anti-fascist organizers, Um, even when the far right is really pulling really hard at them. And it's also endemic on us to, like, to talk to people about the issues from this perspective, to talk about what economic dispossession means, what about the future of the economy looks like, what does it mean to confront these issues in a way that includes all of us. So I think it's also right now is a good period of time when people to start talking about, let's speak that language and figure out a way to build those bonds.
1: Well, you mentioned Trumpian candidates. What do you think the success and or failure of MAGA politicians in the upcoming midterms, how will that impact the ongoing alliance
2: and crossover between the GOP and the far right? I mean, I think I think it will have a, a major impact. I think, you know, Beltway conservatism and their kind of rich donor class support far right candidates in as much as they protect capital. So in as much they, as they further their interests. Um, and that means winning. Right. Like they, they would have to actually win. I don't see them investing tons of money into candidates that show a losing strategy and advancement for particularly the progressive wing or quote unquote progressive wing of the democratic party. If they, if they are pushing these candidates and then, um, sort of like left leaning candidates that speak the same language of economic dispossession and community control stuff, though they win instead, the donor class will see that as a failure and they'll want to pivot. I think what's interesting here and what I think still needs to sort of be fleshed out to see it, um, to see it completely with with complete clarity is that we're not just dealing with sort of like MAGA candidates. We're dealing with an entire reshaping of the Republican Party. So if you look at, you know, like, for example, the recent National Conservatism Conference and the kind of wave around places like the Claremont Institute, you're seeing sort of a more self-conscious reshaping of the party and i think that one has longevity to, to not just like have this kind of maga surge of these conspiracy candidates things like that but to actually fundamentally change all of what's expected from a gop candidate and to basically found themselves entirely on one some of these cultural issues but but foundationally on immigration and so i think We'll see. That will take a hit. Their side will take a hit if they don't do well in the midterms. But I think there are really long-term forces reshaping the party. And part of this is it has to happen for them because they're no longer able to connect with the white working class unless they reshape in this way, unless they tell a story about the white working class. Um, and that's the story they want to tell. So I think that will take a hit. But we should also look at what the next four years, eight years, 10 years looks like as national conservatives take over the party, um, as the even the party sort of. um stalwarts and the old class start to shift and as they also start to leave you know who they're being replaced by
1: so you're saying like they could jettison some of their more egregious alliances but you know the tucker carlsonism so to speak could still be sort of the
2: politics of the day I think they'll get rid of, they could get rid of the kind of open conspiracy element and the bombasticness of it, but the, yeah, the Tucker Carlson sort of white identity politics is here to stay. They, they really don't have a party without that any longer.
1: On that tip, and you mentioned this before, uh, but I wanted to kind of come back to it. So we've seen increased crossover between some GOP officials and outright white nationalists and, you know, militia figures groypers i mean the list goes on you know how should we approach this so you know especially like in places like idaho where you have people like taking photos with like vincent james and people like gosar like literally retweeting documentaries featuring nick fuentes and stuff i mean what should the response be from anti-fascists should we leave that for the liberals to kind of go after which doesn't seem to have much effect um you know is there something that grassroots movements can do in response to politicians in the GOP having open alliances with the far right
2: yeah there's a there's a recent book by Dave Renton who wrote the afterword for No Passeron that people really like and should check out um and he basically makes a case that that no platforming um the far right is successful when they have sort of, like, reached a level of fascism that everyone can kind of agree to. So, like, it has to be extreme enough that no platforming them will be appealing to most of the community, and there's sort of, like, different gradients and how that works. And so, you know, that why might be why, you know, people... Maybe maybe they'll protest a Republican candidate, but maybe no platforming isn't the right approach, something like that. I think the problem here with a lot of these figures are is that they have reached a standard by which we used to all previously agree. Um, is white nationalist adjacent or in support of white nationalism. And so I think we should believe people when they tell you who they are. You know, If Paul Gosar is going to be collaborating with Nick Fuentes, he's a Nick Fuentes collaborator. I don't see another way to sort of deal with it. The, so I think at those events and stuff, they should be seen as far-right events that have counter-organizing like any far-right event. The question, I think, though, is of scale. Like, can communities scale up? demonstrations and things to actually compete with someone like Paul Gosar and their attraction. I think they do that by pulling together really, really broad coalitions of folks and meeting that challenge. And that means long-term relationship building. That means real coordination. That means bringing in uh, groups like labor unions and large organizations that can support that. And I think reframing it, not just like a small group of folks who want to you know, disrupt an event, but having the entire community come together on that. And that actually does what the liberals want to do more effectively. It communicates with everyone about what's going on. It reframes those things. It gets them involved in things. But it does it through actual participation. And so if we want to confront stuff like Paul Gorsar and and other like figures that are basically taking far right the far right movement, the actual material movement, and moving it onto like the national political stage, then you're gonna have to come with capacity. And that means getting everyone involved and thinking of like organizing strategies that can appeal to those large bases.
1: You know, I'm curious your thoughts there's been continued talk about, you know, a civil war or, you know, Trump alluding to his supporters rioting or you know doing violent action if he's arrested or you know whatever i think we're sort of pessimistic about that stuff just because it seems to be repeated ad nauseum but what are your thoughts
2: i guess it's entirely possible i know like folks like timothy snyder have pointed to like for example the secretary of states republican secretary of states around the country that would really refuse to certify an election if trump lost if he was to run again 2024 um, I think those things are concerning. Absolutely. But I think what people are sort of picking up on is more of a pessimism about our future in general um, and the seeing of things like economic and ecological collapse is coming rather than simply an ideological civil war. There's a lot of instability coming. Um And so I think that in a way is how we should understand it is that, yeah, there's actually going to be a lot of conflict coming as conditions get worse. Um, and instead of just like preparing for civil war and picking sides, something like that, but instead of thinking about. More holistically, what does it take to a community to survive a crisis? How do you build up a base there? How do you create centers of mutual aid and solidarity? How do you build that kind of thing up? And I think that's a more effective answer to, like, the question of civil war than just kind of uh, figuring out how to kind of far, fight off far-right neighbors. I think instead thinking about how to reframe your community as one that's vibrant and successful and flourishing is sort of how you take it kind of go about that so i I do think there will probably be increased polarization there will be you know increased increased kind of threats from even the beltway right but i think in a lot of ways this is endemic to a crisis that we are we have already entered and will continue to accelerate um, and one in which we have to have a totalizing response to we have to organize the entire community not just in response to one threat but in response to all the threats simultaneously
1: Anti fascists have moved from sort of large scale mobilizations to more smaller scale community engagements, especially as the far right has shifted uh, into these more, you know, localized culture war uh, initiatives. What can help us in the battles to come as this terrain continues to
2: shift? I think building up long term relationships, building up kind of cultures of care and mutual aid, figuring out how to meet the needs of the people in your community, um, showing value to folks, like creating a space where people are sort of getting what they need. They're able to build relationships and to feel like they have a real stake in the community. Those are the things that help all forms of organizing. That 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 helps all forms of kind of collaboration and successful living. That's how we get through things like the pandemic, it's how we get through, you know, for example, like large forest fires up and down the west coast, and it's how we deal with the incursions of the far right because the far right is a crisis and also a symptom of the larger instability as a whole. And so I think people are going to have to think about how to build up those long-term relationships not just through like activist utility, not just like in what it gets people and how they're able to create pressure tactics or whatever, but in how we build a kind of long-term relationships. And I think people are doing that. People are, there is a sort of reclamation of the neighborhood of civic organizations of, of even like churches and stuff, but people want to be kind of bonded with each other. And so as we create solutions for a lot of the ongoing kind of entrenched, trent, entrenched problems we're dealing with, we end up strengthening our ability to kind of push back on the far right when it comes in.
1: Once again, it's so great to have you on here and really looking forward to the book. Any other thoughts you want to share and where can people pick up the book? I'm assuming AK press online.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can order it directly from AK Press if you want to, which is great because they're also a, a bookseller themselves. So it's a great way to support it. You can get it pretty much any bookstore, you know, Amazon, Powell's, Barnes and Noble. Uh, a number of bookstores, indie bookstores are doing pre-order programs where so you can get like a signed book, like a, a Powell's. Um, and so go ahead and check it out there. And I think, you know, one of the things we talk about, the book really talks about is how we can kind of expand our understanding of anti-fascism. And I think that's what's on us right now is to start to think about not just how to make anti-fascism the status quo in communities and in social movements, but how they interact with other social movements and how you sort of expand strategies and tactics far beyond what you know people conventionally think of as anti-fascism what is it going to need to confront threats in the future and that's what i want to get people talking about
1: this has been the it's going down podcast check it's going down.org for daily updates columns action reports and news go to it's slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms igd your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life